You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi, if you guys could have your Bibles open to John chapter 20, I'll be reading from verse 19 through to 31. Um, There's Bibles at the end of the pews or you can follow along behind me if you don't have a Bible. On the beginning, sorry, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hand and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and and put a finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. (laughs) Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thanks, Steph. Please do keep your Bibles open at John chapter 20. Uh, If you'd like a sermon outline, if you find that helpful, you can head to the welcome card. You'll find that there. Uh, Kids, you've got your sermon sheets, hopefully, that will help you to pay attention Uh, You can copy out the Bible passage and there'll be some questions. Oh, there's some fill in the blanks and so I'll kind of let you know as we go throughout the sermon when to listen up so you can fill in the blanks there and maybe mum or dad can help you with that. Um, As I said before, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Aaron is on leave today, but he'll be back on deck tomorrow and then I'm going to be taking a week off. And I'm actually very excited to be preaching on this passage today. We're we're almost at the end of John's Gospel. It's been wonderful journeying together. And it's my pleasure to preach today on this really exciting, wonderful passage. Uh, So as we prepare ourselves for that, let's pray and then we'll get stuck into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this true story from John's Gospel. Help us to understand what it teaches us and how we can live as followers of Jesus. Amen. What is faith? If you were to ask people in our community that question, I expect many of them would say something along the lines of believing in things you can't prove, but that you just kind of feel are true, you have faith. Perhaps accepting truths that go against the evidence around us. Richard Dawkins is a man who's had a lot to say about faith over the years, not particularly nice things to say. He's an Oxford fellow, an evolutionary biologist, and a strong opponent of religion. Here's what he said in a lecture back in the 90s. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence, 
Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And over the decades, he said pretty much similar things. Basically, his message is that faith is what you have when you don't have evidence or when you don't want to use your reason. And I expect many people, including Christians, would think this way too. You know, we can't prove that God is real. We can't prove that we'll go to heaven when we die. So we just have to have faith. It's almost like faith is wishful thinking. And when evidence is presented to the contrary, then we cover our eyes and we block our ears and we turn up the faith dial. But that's not what faith is at all. At least not faith as it's described in the Bible. The faith that Christians have is a faith in the God of the Bible who keeps his promises and has shown himself to be faithful. It's a deep-seated trust based on what God has done. Our beliefs are based on evidence. And nowhere is that clearer than in this passage before us today. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, are written to make this very point. So as we go through it, I'm going to highlight what John is calling us to believe in and how that gives content to our faith, it gives weight to our faith, and it gives credibility to our faith. So kids, listen up. Here's an answer for the first fill-in-the-blanks question on your sermon sheet. What is faith? Well, the first element that John shows us is that faith is belief, that Jesus was physically resurrected in the same body. How about I set the scene? It's still Easter Sunday. Earlier that day, John, the author of this book, and Peter, they've had their running race to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid and the body's no longer there. All that's left are the empty grave clothes. Then Mary Magdalene, she saw the risen Jesus, she went to the disciples and shared the good news with them, Jesus is alive again. And then we see what happened next in verse 19. If you've got a Bible, have a look. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So these are Jesus' apostles. They know that the tomb is empty. They've heard Mary say that she saw Jesus, but they're struggling to believe. I mean, they're afraid that the Jews are going to maybe attack them to arrest them or perhaps they're going to accuse them of stealing Jesus' body to kind of set up a bit of a hoax to fool people. Yet despite them locking the doors out of fear, Jesus appears in the midst of the room. And we're not told how he did this. You know, did he kind of like phase through the walls? Did he teleport in like Star Trek or Harry Potter? Did he make himself invisible and kind of followed them into the room and then, surprise, revealed himself later? Or did he secretly unlock the door, came in, quietly shut the door, locked it, and then revealed himself? Well, these are all theories that people have. But the fact is, we're not actually told, are we? We can have fun speculating about this. But in all of our speculation, there's one truth we have to keep in mind. Jesus still has a physical body. He was raised up in the same body that he died in. And he proves this by showing the disciples the wounds in his hands and side. See the nail marks, see the hole from the spear. 
This is the body killed by crucifixion, yet now gloriously risen by God. And so the apostles are overjoyed at the sight of their master. What a wonderful fulfilment of Jesus' words back on that Thursday during the farewell dinner when he said, your grief will turn to joy. Well, here it is. This is the first piece of evidence that faith, that faith in Jesus rests on, his physical resurrection. Now, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher from the 18th century, he rejected all miracles. He said that they were violations of the natural laws, therefore they are impossible. And he would reject a miracle like the resurrection since, well, every human being who has died other than Jesus has stayed dead and so therefore they are all the counterexamples. They are the proof that Jesus couldn't possibly have risen from the dead. Now I say this because a lot of people today still think like this. And we could reply, well, Jesus' resurrection is the exception. That's the point. That's why it's a miracle. But here's a thought from first, first century Jewish thinking. They believed that at the end of history, God would raise up the faithful to new life, to everlasting life. Just like us, they didn't expect people to begin that life today. And they certainly didn't expect resurrection to take place in the middle of history. They even figured like Lazarus and other people that Jesus brought back to life, they knew that they would die again. But the resurrection to everlasting life? That's not going to happen now. That's going to happen later. And so that's why Jesus has to go to such lengths to prove to them that he's truly alive in the same body he died in. It was too soon in their reckoning. And so the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection is what makes it so special. So let's move on to our second element that John shows us about faith. So kids, listen up. Here's another answer for your sermon sheet. The second element is the belief that Jesus alone brings true peace through forgiveness. Have a look again at verses, uh, have a look now at verses 21 to 23. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is kind of a strange scene, isn't it? Like Jesus breathes out and gives them the Holy Spirit. Now don't picture it as Jesus like kind of blowing out this huge gust of wind or these kind of weird supernatural swirls of mist coming out and going into the mouths of the apostles. I actually think it's more like an enacted parable. Just like Jesus washed the disciples' feet to point forward to his act of humble, cleansing service on the cross, so too here he seems to be pointing forwards to when he would pour out the Holy Spirit in, in the, the fullness of that on the day of Pentecost. After all, he said himself in the farewell gathering that he would only send the Spirit once he had returned to the Father. Yet at the same time, this is not just fully looking forward to the future, there does seem to be some sort of bestowal of, of the Spirit upon them so as to help them in some way. If you like, you can check out Luke chapter 24 later on. He kind of has the, his account of the, of the same story, a parallel version. Uh, and in that, Luke describes how Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. 
And that was prior to Pentecost. And no doubt that required a work of the Holy Spirit. Well, John is adding an extra element by saying the Holy Spirit authorised the apostles to declare forgiveness through the gospel. This is a spirit-empowered authority. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that they have personally have the power to make someone forgiven. They, they can't forgive someone's sin based on their own authority. They can't look at a random crowd and say, well, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're not forgiven, you're not forgiven. You, no, the one behind you, yes, you're forgiven. That's not what's happening. Rather, they declare the message, the good news, the gospel. They tell people that Jesus has died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He has shed his blood to bring peace. He has given his life as a ransom to secure eternal life. They are authorised to preach this message and then declare that everyone and anyone who turns to Jesus, who repents and believes, is 100% guaranteed to be forgiven. That's the authority they have. I think this is strengthened by Jesus three times saying, peace be with you. In one sense, that's kind of like a greeting, isn't it? It's like he's saying, shalom. But he's also showing that he is the one who gives that peace. He shows them his pierced body. He bears the wounds that bring peace. And I couldn't help but think of Isaiah 53 this week. It's written 700 years before Jesus was born. But listen to verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. What are the wounds that bring healing? The wounds in his hands, the wounds in his side. The apostles were not crucified so that they could bring forgiveness. No other man or woman, no Christian leader, no priest, no pope, no guru, no philosopher, no Oxford professor can bring you true forgiveness and lasting peace. Only Jesus can. Faith in Jesus is faith that he alone forgives. Time for the third element that John shows us about faith. And so kids, listen up. Here's another answer for your sermon sheet. The third element is belief in the testimony of the eyewitnesses. John shares a unique story for us about Thomas. His first readers knew him by the nickname Didymus, which is Greek for the word twin. Now that's an interesting story, isn't it? What's going on there? Who is he twin with? We're not told, unfortunately. Anyway, we know Thomas by another nickname, don't we? What is it? Doubting Thomas, that's right. So let's see how he gets this name. Check out verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, for some reason, Thomas wasn't in the room where it happened and he refuses to accept their version of events. And as we read on, you can notice how uh, the scenario is almost identical to what had happened a week earlier. Verse 26. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. So this event took place a week later, on the following Sunday, in fact, which corresponds with today, right? The Sunday after Easter. So it's nice that we're doing this passage today. And we can see now why it is that Thomas gets the name Doubting Thomas. But I wonder if maybe that's a little bit too easy on him. Perhaps a better name is Unbelieving Thomas. Now, please excuse me, I'm going to share a little bit of Greek here that might excite one or two other people, but just bear with me. Uh, The word for faith or belief in the original Greek of John here is pistos. John creates the negative version of that word by adding an alpha to it, like the letter A. So it says, apistos. And so in English, we might say, you know, faith versus anti-faith or belief versus unbelief. It's the negation of belief. John doesn't actually use the Greek word for doubt, and there are a couple of perfectly good words he could have used. In fact, the word that he does use is found often to refer to unbelievers. So I think Jesus is actually saying to Thomas, you're actually being an unbeliever. Have a look at verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, on the one hand, it's wonderful that Thomas has believed in Jesus, that he's alive. But on the other hand, he's setting a very dangerous precedent here. He's setting the precedent that every individual human would need a physical visit from the resurrected Jesus before they would believe. That sort of attitude would undermine the entire Christian mission. This sort of attitude could actually use doubt as a mask for unbelief. I came across this cracker of a quote from John Calvin this week as I was preparing my sermon. Here's what he had to say about Thomas. The stupidity of Thomas was astonishing and monstrous. Tell us what you really think, Calvin. Love it. But it's an important point. You see, Thomas is like the person who says, I will only believe in God if he proves himself on my terms. That's when someone wants to set the conditions on belief. Imagine if during a court case, the jury were able to set the conditions based on which they would believe that someone was innocent or guilty. You know, if they said, unless I see the murder victim's body and place my finger in the bullet hole, I will not believe that the defendant is guilty. That's no way to run a justice system, is it? And so this leads us to an important point. Faith does not require sight, but it does require evidence. Now, some people think that Jesus is saying here that it's actually better to believe without seeing Jesus. In other words, it's better to believe having no evidence. They think that faith without evidence is more valuable. That's nonsense. That's to lean into Richard Dawkins' definition of faith as being what you do when you don't have evidence. As we'll soon see, 
John makes it clear that he's collected this story and others so that we would have evidence, so that we'd have enough evidence to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So what Jesus is really saying is that there are different types of evidence. It could be visual, like for the disciples who could see and touch and talk with Jesus. But for those of us who are separated from this incident by geography and time, we need other types of evidence. And so we have the evidence of eyewitness testimony. We have the account recorded by John. We've also got the account recorded by Matthew and Mark and Luke. We've got the Apostle Paul who later saw the risen Jesus and wrote about this. We have the testimony of the church who has believed for millennia without changing that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, listen to what Peter wrote years later to Christians spread throughout the Roman Empire. He said, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These people, they heard the testimony of Peter and others and they had faith based on the evidence even though they'd never seen Jesus with their own eyes. Are you willing to accept this type of faith? Or do you expect Jesus to bow to your demands? Do you tell him what you will require before you believe? Do you tell him what you will require so that you will continue to believe? See, the problem is you could risk becoming an unbeliever like Thomas was at risk of becoming. So far, we have seen that Christian faith includes belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus. It includes the belief that he alone brings forgiveness. It includes belief in the eyewitness testimony about these details. So let's move on to the fourth element in our passage. So kids, listen up. Here's another answer for your sermon sheets. The fourth element is the belief that Jesus is Lord and God. Now, perhaps I'm a little bit too hard on Thomas. I mean, he is indeed commended by Jesus for his belief. And the confession that he makes is kind of like a high point for the whole book, isn't it? Look again at verse 28. My Lord and my God. Whatever doubts or unbelief he had has now been swept away. He professes that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not Caiaphas, not Pilate, not even Thomas himself. Jesus is Lord of his life. And he also confesses that Jesus is God. Jesus is God himself come down to earth as a man. People tend to get a bit uncomfortable here. You know, the critics start to get uncomfortable. You know, they refuse to accept that Thomas would believe that Jesus is divine. Surely that's a later invention by Christians, you know, decades or hundreds of years later. Surely none of the disciples would have thought that. Amusingly, some people even try to explain this away by saying that, well, Thomas is just making a bit of a surprised exclamation. It's kind of an OMG moment. You know, Jesus, you're alive and you're my Lord and, and praise God. But all throughout this book, John has been dropping hints that Jesus is God. Chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. What did the Jews do? 
They pick up stones to stone him because they know he's equated himself with God. He said that he is God. And so it makes perfect sense that the climax of the whole book, Thomas would be presented as the ideal convert who professes that Jesus is both Lord and God. And so this is a key part of the true faith. You can't be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God. That doesn't mean that you'll understand how it all works, but you can't be saved and also believe that Jesus was just a man. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. But uh, speak to me afterwards if you've got questions about Jesus and divinity and the incarnation, all that kind of stuff. It's time now for our final element about faith that John wants to share with us. So, kids, listen up. One more answer for your sermon sheet to fill in the blanks. The fifth element is the belief that Jesus is the king who brings life. You have no idea how excited I am to be here at verses 30 and 31. Anyone who's been in my gospel community will know we've talked about this a lot. These verses, they express John's purpose in writing the whole book and they provide us with the key for unlocking what we've been reading. So are you ready to hear the verses? Yes, one person's ready. Are you ready to hear these verses? Okay, let's get into it. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John clearly says that Christian faith must include belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. In Greek, that word is Christos or Christ. And in Hebrew, my wife hates me pronouncing this word, but in Hebrew it's Mashiach or Messiah. It means God's special king. Jesus is the one who has been sent to save and sent to rule. He's not like a superhero who saves the day and then disappears off into his bat cave or his New York apartment. Now he's the saviour who comes to rescue us and then lovingly rule us as the servant king. In Jewish thinking, the coming Messiah, he was often referred to as the Son of God. You can look up you know, Psalm 2, for example. He was seen to have such a close relationship with God that he could be called God's Son. And so the idea of the Messiah and the Son of God was seen as interchangeable. But we see here that with Jesus, particularly in light of Thomas's confession, that well, he's literally the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is divine. Jesus is the eternal Son who left his home in glory to come to earth to live as a man, to be crowned as king on the cross, who died, who was buried, who was risen from the grave in the same body but now in a glorified state, and he's ascended into heaven to take up his royal throne. And it's from there that he grants eternal life to all who will believe in his name. And the theme of life, eternal life, that's, that's another one that we've encountered throughout John's Gospel, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. He said to the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman, that he, that he gives water that will spring up, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
He said that just as the Father gives life, so too the Son gives life to whomever he pleases. He said that this is eternal life, to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Life is all throughout this gospel. But what is this life like? What's well, one of the reasons why John has recorded the signs, the miracles of Jesus? John says that Jesus performed many other signs, but he has selected a specific set so that we'd have all of the evidence we need to believe that Jesus is the life-giving king. And do you notice that he says Jesus did other signs? Because I think the resurrection is the greatest and final sign. But there are six others, so we're going to review them on a bit of a whirlwind tour through John to learn more about eternal life. So, number one, Jesus turns the ceremonial washing water into a large volume of wine, celebration wine, at a wedding. By doing this, he shows that he's the one who gives abundant, joyful life, apart from ceremony and religious rules. Number two, Jesus healed a boy by simply speaking a word when he was in a completely different village. And the boy was healed at that moment. He shows that our physical distance from Jesus is, is no barrier. It doesn't prevent us from experiencing and enjoying that life even now. Number three, Jesus healed a lame man on the Sabbath. He shows that he's the fulfilment of Sabbath rest because he will heal our bodies. He'll perfect them. He'll make them fit for enjoying eternal life for eternity. Number four, Jesus fed a vast multitude with five loaves of bread and two fish and he shows that he's able to provide for us, that he's able to satisfy our deep spiritual hunger. And then he walked on water, which is kind of linked, I think, in the same sign because he's showing that just as God led his people out of Egypt through the waters in the Exodus and then provided for them in the wilderness, so too Jesus is that God come to earth who provides for his people who can tame the storms, walk on the water and can provide everything that we need for our spiritual good. Number five, Jesus healed a man born blind. This shows he's able to give us true sight so we can understand what life is really about, who God is, who we are and how to be restored to God. Number six, Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He shows that he is the resurrection and the life and not even death can prevent us from receiving the eternal life that Jesus has secured for us in his life, death and resurrection. This is the Jesus that we are called to believe in. This is the life that he offers us. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is our Lord. This is our God. Do you believe? Do you believe? Amen. So that brings us to the end of our passage. And now we have all of the pieces we need to put together our definition of faith. I'm not saying this is the best definition or the only definition, but I think it's one that's true to what John is trying to teach us here. We've seen that true faith, Christian faith, faith in Jesus includes at least the following elements. Belief that Jesus was physically resurrected in the same body. Belief that Jesus alone brings peace through forgiveness, belief in the testimony of the eyewitnesses, belief that Jesus is Lord and God 
belief that Jesus is the king who gives life. And so here is my way of summarising all of that. Faith in Jesus is belief in the facts of the apostolic testimony that he is the life-giving, peace-bringing, resurrected divine king. Let me say that again. Faith in Jesus is belief in the facts of the apostolic testimony that he is the life-giving, peace-bringing, resurrected divine king. It might seem like a bit of a mouthful. It probably doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? But I hope you can see what I'm trying to do. You see, faith is not wishful thinking. It's not a vague sense that things will work out. It's not like the theme of self-belief found in many cartoons or manga. You know, if you just believe in yourself, you can be a Pokemon master or the best ninja in your village. Instead, faith has content. It's about believing certain facts. The facts that we've looked at. And we totally, absolutely reject Dawkins' view that faith is belief in the face of no evidence. We also reject the view that faith is just an experience or an emotion. Maybe people have a spiritual moment, you know, a near-death experience or an odd encounter with a mysterious stranger or they witness a miracle and that's why they have faith. But it lacks any real content. It's more kind of a sense of otherworldly forces or a transcendent reality. It's just kind of this sense of faithiness. And it might lead to someone describing themselves as spiritual, but it's not Christian faith. And it's not a faith that can save. Also, faith is not something that's just kind of based on rumours, for example. You know, rumours about kind of Jesus or special encounters people have maybe had with him over the millennia. Rather, the content we put our faith in has been recorded for us in the Bible. It's what's been recounted by the eyewitnesses. You know, David Hume is right. We don't expect miracles today. But miracles did happen at one particular time in history and the chief one among them was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so what we have to rely on is the testimony of those who were there. We don't expect them to be repeated for our benefit. Instead, we have to listen, read the testimony. And you know what? The more we study this testimony, the more we see that it makes sense. It does actually hold up. And it does actually transform the lives of those who believe it. One final comment. You might still doubt at times. That's okay. As we saw last Sunday, faith can take time to grow. We hit bumps along the road. We'll get confused. We'll feel uncertain. People will present evidence or arguments that kind of unsettle us or rattle us. That's normal. That is part of walking by faith. So it's okay to doubt, but don't use doubt as a mask for unbelief. Because you see, true doubters will keep seeking. You know, they'll, they'll get help, they'll hold on to faith, they'll be able to maybe hold things in tension at times while they're still kind of sorting it out. But they'll keep progressing. But see, there are some people who will use doubt as a mask for unbelief because they're trying to deny that certainty is possible. 
they almost hold doubt up as a, as a badge of honour, a mark of being a, a, a true kind of believer because, well, I don't think anything can be true, so I'm just going to have faith. I doubt. But see, this type of doubt is used to tear down belief. This type of doubt is often used to excuse their own rebellion. And so if you find yourself in a kind of uncertain place, doubting, maybe even unbelieving, then please come and speak to me or to a Christian that you trust. And if you do doubt, it's okay to doubt in a faithful way. But having said that, I'm actually really pleased to be part of Darabin Presbyterian Church where people fully and freely embrace true faith in Christ. I encourage you to keep following Jesus in faith. You're all doing a wonderful job at that. Keep at it. Keep putting your trust in Jesus. How wonderful it is that John has written this book for us with these signs, with these miracles, these stories about Jesus so we can understand who he is and what he's done for us. Because it gives content to our faith, it gives weight to our faith, and it gives credibility to our faith. And what is our faith? Well, faith in Jesus is belief in the facts of the apostolic testimony that he is the life-giving, peace-bringing, resurrected divine king. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, how wonderful it is that we can pray to you because you are God. We're not praying to a mere man. We are praying to a divine being who took on flesh and who is now God and man. Thank you that you hear our prayers because you are alive today, seated on the throne in heaven. We thank you for your faithful disciple, John, for the record he's left for us and this record that's been preserved down through the millennia so that even today we can learn about you and come to have a true, deep, meaningful, life-changing faith in you in you who brings us peace and forgiveness, who was risen today and always, and who is the one who gives us life. Amen.